Business Women Rock, Episode 6. Ladies, it's time to rock. Welcome to the Business Women Rock Podcast, where we get down and dirty with the world's most incredible businesswomen. Inspire your journey by listening to theirs. And now, here's your host, Katie Kremitzos. Welcome to the sixth episode of the Business Women Rock podcast. If you have ever had an idea that you thought would be brilliant and would fulfill a need in the marketplace and wanted to know about how to bring that concept into reality and actually how to raise money for that concept and how to get it into market, then my interview today with Zoe Berry is going to be perfect for you. Now, Zoe is the founder and inventor of ZapRx which is a mobile platform that really helps to manage the entire prescription process. Really what it is, is a mobile tool that allows you, your physician, and the pharmacy to all connect and to be able to systemize all those processes that need to happen in order for those three parties to communicate. It's a brilliant idea. So my interview with Zoe today is going to talk about how she even came up with the idea, how she got it actually in her hand once the concept was out of her head, how she raised funds to be able to make that happen, and how she's taking it to market. It's a fascinating discussion. I do want to give you a little bit of a heads up that the volume on my end during this conversation is a little rough. I'm going to ask for a little bit of forgiveness since this was an interview I did in the very, very infancy of my podcasting career, but I didn't want anything to get in the way of you having access to this story because the information that Zoe shares is so powerful. So turn up the volume. The interview starts now. Zoe, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yes, of course. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. Now, I was so excited when I knew that you were coming on the show because, um, as I've mentioned before, I eat, breathe, and sleep entrepreneurialism and business because it's not only who I am, but it's really who we serve on a regular basis in our company. And um, as I came across interviews with you and did a little bit of researching on your background, I realized that you have that same fire, you have that same passion. So I really am so excited to share with our listeners today about your story, about the journey that you've had. So I want to start as a 29-year-old. How in the world did you even get introduced into the world of entrepreneurialism? Sure. So I, I kind of fell into it. Um, I got my, my, my launch, my career start on Wall Street. And um, I was working at a broker-dealer fund, and I was really kind of bored. And I had this idea for a company, and I wanted to start it right then and there. I had no idea what it really took to launch a company, so I made lots of mistakes. Um, I went into business with a friend on my very first company, and we launched in October of 2008 uh, for this you know, idea of investing in art for the purpose of it appreciating in value, um, not for aesthetics. I made so many mistakes in that first company that it failed within a couple of months. So I, you know, kind of hung my hat up and decided I was not going to do this company and I went off and I did other things. But I got a taste for entrepreneurship um, and I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed having the control. I really enjoyed setting up milestones that you had to execute on. What were some of those mistakes in the in that first company that you had made? So the the major one was going into business with a friend. I will say this time and time again, do not, you're very, do not have your first hire be your friend. Um, There are lots of different ways that changes the dynamic, the business dynamic. Um, You might set expectations, I want something done by tomorrow. And if it's a friend, they may or may not get that done. Hopefully they do. But if they don't, it becomes very hard to sort of work with someone in a business capacity who's not executing because it's not just a business rapport. It extends beyond that. And it's very hard to motivate someone who's a friend and have that conversation you're underperforming when it's not just a business relationship. So that was one of the earliest mistakes that I made. And I saw a lot of friction um, stem from that. Um, and a lot of inability to sort of move forward. Instead of setting milestones, you had lots, I had lots of discussions with my, my friend, um, and it didn't move forward and did not evolve into anything further. So for me, um, I had to walk away from, from that company and had to fold that company. What's interesting is that I still learned a little bit about customers in that experience. So one of the things that I did, and again, this was um, in an art investment company, my, my first concept, um, I identified, 
a flag that had been found in a Southern Reconstruction home. And it was being sold by the uh, contractor for the home because the homeowner kind of thought it was cool. Um, and it was very old, uh, the, this flag. It was from when the first, when the South seceded from the North. It was the first flag um, for this. It was seven stars in a circle and, and three bars. And I had to buy this flag sight unseen because it could not be shown at the auction. I didn't have a customer that was lined up for it. So that was probably um, one of the biggest mistakes that I made was just assuming that there would be a need. So you don't want to do that. Ultimately, the end of the story is that because this um, auction couldn't sell this flag, I ended up buying it for $400, sight unseen, all in. The flag is worth between five dollars and $50,000. So it was a great, great um, business prospect. Uh, but at the time, I couldn't execute on it because I didn't have a customer that was lined up. And I had other business problems that were going on because I was in business with a friend. Wow. And what? talk a little bit more about that um, experience kind of working your, with your friend because we work with a business strategist on a regular basis for to grow our company. And one of the things that he really touts is you can only have one relationship with one person at a time. So <laughs> when you start to mix those two things, it gets a little hairy. Yeah, I would, I would guess I, I concur. I fully agree. Um, you want to tee yourself up for success. So anything you can do, any errors that you can minimize, you want to definitely avoid them. And going into business with a friend, uh, as I said before, it, it changes the expectation for uh, for how to communicate. Um, you can't tell someone they're underperforming and then walk away at the end, close of business and come back. Um, you typically have a line out to them, text message, phone calls, et cetera. And so it really changes uh, just the style of communication. You would never really be texting your boss, sorry, I can't get this done, I've got an errand to run. But you might text a friend that. Um, so that's what I mean by sort of identifying um, ways to minimize mistakes and errors and just, you know, going into business with someone who's a professional. Um, you also want to always hire someone and go into business with someone who has um, complementary as opposed to overlapping skill sets as you. Often I see entrepreneurs going into business with a friend because it feels good, it's fuzzy-wuzzy, and you've got someone to sort of hang out with and talk with, and that's exciting, and it makes you feel good. But it's unlikely that a friend will have the exact opposite skill set that, that you have um, and can bring a lot to the table and you can work together. And one person can be the CEO, one person can build a technology. Um, it's unlikely that you'll have that, that sort of um, distinction between friends. Whereas if you go into business with somebody and the expectation is I'm the CEO and I'm going to launch the business and build the business model and find the investors, I'm going to hire somebody who has the skills that I need to match my company. And it's not only going to be someone who um, is a technologist, but you might be looking at different platforms, different programming languages. Is it a website? Is it a mobile app? Is it Android? Is it iPhone? You can better curate your um, your team roster by going with hires um, that are purely professionally driven as opposed to uh, friendly driven. You talked a little bit about um, goal setting and milestones. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. So I'll move into talking about ZapRx now um, because I think that it's the most successful story <laughs> that I that I have to share. Um, when I came up with the idea for ZapRx, it was really simple. Um, it was to combine the idea of e-prescribing with mobile patient uh, mobile payments and to create a digital prescription that's shareable with patients on a mobile platform. The reality is that's a huge endeavor to create that platform. Um, you have to choose uh, milestones that you can get to really small steps that you're taking in order to get to a much larger beachhead. So for me, the first thing that I did was have this quote-unquote eureka moment. I immediately pitched it to a doctor. I needed to get in front of somebody who was potentially a customer. Uh, ultimately, I now know in healthcare that's not a scalable model to have a doctor be a customer. But I had to share with him the vision for what ZapRx was. And I got the first form of encouragement from this doctor where he said, Zoe, this technology does not exist, and frankly, it should. You should go out and you should patent this. What was interesting is that he gave me the encouragement that I needed, but he also made me feel as though I could really execute on it. And finally, he gave me an actual milestone that I could get to that I hadn't thought of myself, which was getting that patent. So when I left Athena Health, which was the company I was working for at the time, and I had this grandiose idea for ZapRx, I also had a very important starting point which was to try to get a patent. That gave me um, something to, to look forward to and reach for. It also set in line several different um, smaller problems that I could get to as that's my first beachhead. So the first thing that I did was figure out people who had patents currently that could 
work with me and show me what a patent was. It seemed very novel to me. I was 27 at the time, or 26 actually at the time, and I didn't know anyone that really had their own patents that were issued. Fortunately, I'm in Boston, uh, and I had some friends over at MIT, and they had issued patents. So they literally invited me into their academic offices and showed me their patents, showed me what a patent even looked like, diagrams, claims, etc. And they sat down with me and helped me write those first diagrams, those first claims. I also ended up working with a lawyer um, that all the sort of um, wonderkins at MIT are working with when they don't want MIT to own their technology, and they pull it out of MIT so that they can own it. I ended up working with this person. He was very low cost. So there's always a way to balance your personal burn rate and your corporate burn rate and launch with something that's a little more than a figment of your imagination and really no, no legitimate funding in the bank. So I was able to get a provisional patent filed. Through that process, I ultimately ended up getting in front of Wilmer Hale, which is a major law firm here in Boston. And they have an entire program devoted to helping startups launch. It's called the Quick Start Program. So Quick Start, you apply to the program with a, a senior lawyer who has senior idea, thinks it's patentable, uh, thinks it can be a business model, so they will do both your IP work and your corporate work. I pitched it to this um, senior partner, got into the Quick Start pro- program, which deferred all of my legal fees. So here you have a major law firm deferring legal fees for a startup, so you have legitimate representation and a much better shot at ultimately getting to that patent, that, that, that beachhead that I mentioned previously. In addition, it set me up for um, the next milestone that I would be going for, which is investor funding. Whenever you're starting a company, you want to start at the very beginning, which is friends and family financing. You don't want to go straight to the venture capitalist. You want really, really friendly people who are going to write a check um, really because they believe in you. That's it. The fundamental element is do they believe in you and can you get something started? They're not worrying about a 10x return in three to five years. They're not worried about projections. They're really just supporting you. Having that patent gave me a stake in the ground in terms of defensibility. And it was something novel that friends and family investors could look to and say, okay, here's something that differentiates this company. Legitimately, in the scheme of things, a company is not built on a patent. It's really just a milestone and defense in the ground in terms of uh, uh, stake in the ground in terms of defensibility. And it allowed me to raise that first friends and family dollar, um, which ended up being $20,000 with the first investor that came in and enabled me to really focus on ZapRx and, and launch a company. Wow. I love that story for a couple of reasons. One, because I hear in there um, that you really, through the milestones, sort of broke down you know, just little mini steps here and there. So it didn't seem so huge because when you talk about the launch of your company, I mean, from total startup and, you know, idea in your head to last year in 2013, securing a million dollars in, uh, in funding, that's a, that's a huge accomplishment with such a young company. So I love the idea of actually breaking it down into milestones. And what's interesting to me is you actually, it, it sounds like you really kind of didn't know of the next milestone until you got to one, and then you figured out what the next milestone was. Is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So I, I knew the long-term goal was to be profitable and have customers. Um, and I knew before that it was going to be in venture capital funding and investors. And I knew before that it was going to be friends and family funding. And so I, I had, was starting a company knowing what several of the long-term objectives were, But what's so hard is just launching and knowing what to do today. What is it that you need to wake up and do today when you have something that's just a figment of your imagination? And how do you go from taking something that's rather intangible and very nebulous and making it a reality? And what can you do to pull it out of, you know, the the clouds and the the dreamland and pull it onto the ground? And that's really where, where you start as an entrepreneur when you've got a very early stage concept and you're looking to build a startup and build a company. I love that. And also what I pulled out of that is that you actively reached out to what sounds like an incredibly supportive entrepreneurial community. Boston is very special in the fact that it, it has, um, it, it's really a hotbed for a lot of entrepreneurial support. What, how important was that to you? And what advice would you give to other entrepreneurs who are out there on the ground in the, in the kind of the trenches of their business or about to start a company and how to utilize that support? That's a great question. It <laughs> literally brings a smile to my face. Um, because the environmental situation is actually critical. I would say one of the reasons that first startup failed 
um, is because I was based in New York City. And at the time in 2008, it was very unheard of to be an entrepreneur. Um, I would tell people, I'm, you know, I have a business venture that I'm launching and I'm an entrepreneur. And they would look at me like I had four heads because they'd never heard of the word entrepreneur before. Um, and that was really characteristic of New York. New York is a great city. It's an awesome city for grown-up companies. It is much more hostile and difficult to launch uh, for a startup. Everything is more expensive. Lawyers, real estate, you name it, the, the price is up. Um, compared to Boston, which has a great startup ecosystem. So when I had that, that first moment of my eureka moment, I needed to figure out how to get it done. Uh, there are really innovative centers that support entrepreneurs. So I was able to get sort of friends who are health hackers at MIT to take me under their wing. And from that there, I learned that there's something called the Cambridge Innovation Center, an entire building fully dedicated to startups. And they have something called the Venture Cafe, which runs every Thursday night. And it's forums, little mini classes for our entrepreneurs, sort of run by and for entrepreneurs and, and angel investors and early stage venture capitalists are there. And they're all sharing ideas, swapping perspectives, um, sharing stories on how to be successful. More importantly, sharing stories on failure and how to avoid failure and the pitfalls of that. I started going to the Venture Cafe every single Thursday. I made it my mission to be there. And it was the network effect of being there. One person introduced me to the next person, the next person. And I started having an idea of what I needed to do to define a roadmap to have a successful company. Ultimately, I ended up um, sitting down and writing out that roadmap. It took me from my eureka moment to what could potentially be an exit. I defined it as four key stages for a company. And I went out and sat, I, I sat down and I wrote every single task that had to be um, accomplished within each stage. And then beyond that, because I was at the Venture Cafe, I went out and ac- accumulated a resource list to help you just bang out those tasks. So for me, it started with, you know, the, the IP, the patent, that first friends and family dollar. The next milestone I had to get to was a prototype. I needed to build something so that it wasn't just a figment of my imagination and a piece of paper saying I had a provisional patent filed. It was something much more tangible, much more specific. So, you know, taking that that idea, that dream, and pulling it down to the ground and tethering it to something real. Um, The first task I had to do in getting that prototype done was um, to find someone to build the technology for me. And that presented a few problems. And looking at that, I said, okay, I'm a first-time entrepreneur. I'm 27 years old. I have, you know, $20,000 worth of funding. Um, or at that point, I was just about to get, get the funding. I said, okay, I can either trade sweat equity with a, an engineer and build something of Gen 1 technology, or I can try to go with an actual contracting firm and build something, uh, build something out from there. What I realized is that if you go with the... Um, sort of engineer that you trade for sweat equity, the only people who are trading for sweat equity are probably really mediocre entrepreneurs or really mediocre um, engineers. And the reality is you'll end up with really mediocre technology. So I didn't see the benefit in trading sweat equity because that was going to be very expensive in the long run. Expensive because it was going to take a a lot of time from someone who was not an expert. Expensive in that it was going to... um, you know, uh, drain from the capital pool, sorry, from the, um, from the equity pool. Um, and then expensive in that I wasn't going to get a premier, a premier product. Um, I mapped it and I looked at all the different contracting firms that were in the Boston ecosystem. And they were really expensive because Boston is a center for entrepreneurs and tech companies and healthcare companies. So interestingly, I looked beyond sort of my, my backyard um, of Boston and I saw that there were tech companies, consulting companies in New York City. So New York City is more expensive for just about everything except for the area they don't perform very well in, which is tech. And I ended up finding a tech company in Boston that could do the contracting for me. And they quoted me at about $100,000 uh, for the price of the Gen 1 technology. It wasn't really a staggering number uh, because I was being quoted about $1.5 million, if you can believe it, in Boston. And so that's the benefit. one of the best things entrepreneurs can do is shop around and get creative. So you can experiment with different models. Again, you can do sweat equity or you can just bite the bullet and, and, and hire someone. But don't limit yourself to what, what you see right in front of you um, as the options and, and definitely shop around. Um, that, was, that was one of the best things that I did. And then it gave me a number to shoot for, for friends and family financing. So I knew I had to raise about $100,000. I blew through that and ultimately ended up raising $160,000, but I didn't do it all at once. 
I raised just amount that I needed uh, in order to meet the, make the bills, uh, all the bill payments that I had to do. And here, this gets to an element about being totally passionate and obsessive about your company. And another piece of advice that I can give to entrepreneurs, you have to be realistic about your personal burn rate versus your corporate burn rate. Because I see a lot of early stage companies go belly up because entrepreneurs will map their entire um, corporate burn rate for their startup and completely forget that they have a personal burn rate and they have to get their cell phone bill paid or um, their utilities, their mortgage, etc. So you have to really be realistic and, and balance the two. Can you just really quickly define what a burn rate is? Sure. So a burn rate is how much you're spending on a monthly basis. You look at um, your cell phone bill or your rent, and you want to put that into what is your overall burn rate because that's money that you have to spend in order to exist. So you have your personal expenses that you have to spend in order to exist, and then you have corporate expenses you have to spe- that you have to, to um, spend money on in order to exist. You spent this time creating your plan, getting really educated about what you needed, letting that plan, um, you know, uh, come to fruition according to what you were learning, realizing that you needed um, a certain technology to be able to, to create something hard and real and tangible, then going out and being able to raise the money in order to produce that. All of these pieces are getting brought together in order for you to actually launch. So can you talk a little bit about that launching process? What other pieces did you have to get together and what was that like in order to really finally launch the company? Sure. So, I mean, it was it was a, a grueling process. Um, I ultimately, after raising $160,000 in, in friends and family financing, I raised a million dollars led by Atlas Venture. Um, in Boston, and I had to get two VCs to syndicate, and that was really when the company became "quote unquote" real. I, I'm still a sole founder, so Atlas made a bet on backing an, an independent um, entrepreneur, one-person team. Um, but the first thing I did was start to build the team. So as soon as I was done fundraising, the next part, the next element was um, team raising. So I started flushing our team. Um, and hiring people, and I really wanted to bring that technology in-house because it's important when you get to that stage of the company and you're, you're really becoming a company and you're not <laughs> one person, um, you know, solo, solo show working at, a, at your kitchen table. You have to you know, get office space, get the team together. Um, that was really when it, when it became real. You have to sell the concept of what you're working on um, to the first person, and there's going to be someone who will take a bet. Uh, and come work for you, and really, and work for you. So that goes back to not a friend, but a, a professional relationship. Uh, it's important to to understand the skill set they have in building out your team. You really want people who have complementary skill sets, but they also have to work together. Startups make a lot of mistakes in hiring, and they can hire someone who's very toxic to the team dynamic. And ultimately, it's not a cost that you have to manage. Um, it's a resource that can that can really burn out. Uh, in terms of productivity and the team dynamic and how you can waste time or be more efficient. And that's the first the first critical step in, in launching a company is getting that getting that team dynamic and getting people who have skills that um, can execute on different tasks and you are constantly moving forward. So the first thing we did at, with it as a team is bring the technology um, in-house. And then we started looking at how to launch a pilot. We launched a really baby little pilot, and again, we went to New York City um, to launch that because we had deeper relationships with the providers, uh, or doctors as they're called. I went back to that same doctor who said, really, this technology is something that doesn't exist, and frankly, it should, and you should patent it. So that was a doctor, um, Dr. Gary Goldman in New York City, and so he wanted to be the first person um, to pilot the technology. So we got two doctors together and one independent pharmacy, and we launched um, a small pilot we had a bunch of patients that wanted to fill prescriptions. We learned a lot in that in that first that initial launch about the product and what we were doing. And in that um, period, we actually learned that we had built something more powerful than was necessary for the traditional traditional retail space. So there's a lot of learning that can be done. And we retooled we retooled our go to market approach as part of launching a company as having a go to market approach. And we actually ended up um, pivoting our go to market approach through that pilot experience. You know, it was definitely, it was a, it was a big learning experience um, all around. And it was great to learn that we'd actually solved a larger problem <laughs> than we had originally set out, um, set out to solve. You know, in, in healthcare, and this can get, you know, very micro and highly granular in a, in a couple of minutes. 
But there's a traditional retail space that'll be your you know, CVS, Walgreens, Dwayne Reed, or independent mom and pop um, pharmacy on the street corner. Or there's a niche called specialty. Specialty most consumers are um, not fully aware of because they deal with what's considered an orphan disease, a very, very rare disease that affects a, a low uh, percent of the patient population. And it's very costly um, to treat those 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 patients. Um, medications can run about $100,000 annually per patient. Um, and we realize is that this niche market is $100 billion, $100 billion niche market that um, most consumers are, are totally unaware of. And based upon the workflow processes that exist there and the really woefully outmoded technology that exists in specialty, we realized that that was actually a better market to go after, and that's really where the customers are. Wow, that's incredible. So right now, you're really focusing on that niche market. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, it's, it's really exciting. So we, uh, we just announced a new round of funding. So Atlas doubled down. We doubled the valuation of the company, and we got SR1 to invest. Um, a quick note on SR1, they are the venture arm for GlaxoSmithKline, which is one of the top 10 global pharmaceutical companies worldwide. They have never, ever done a healthcare technology deal. They've only ever done a life sciences or biotech deal. So that's, you know, a, a drug marker or an indicator or some sort of new medication that's being created that will be sold back to the pharmaceutical company. ZapRx, ZapRx is a tech company that services healthcare. So that was the first time in the history of the fund um, that they backed that they backed an HIT company. Wow! Congratulations. That's a very very big deal. Yeah. Thank you. It was no, no small no small feat. Um, but you basically we you know we learned that Jens Eckstein, who's the senior partner there, he had been dreaming of doing an HIT deal for two years two full years, a venture capitalist couldn't find a deal that he wanted to do. And um, SR1 even backed Blueprint Health, which is an accelerator. And in doing that, a health tech accelerator, and doing that for two years, he still couldn't find the company that he wanted. Ultimately, you have to know the dynamics between investors. Um, it's really great to raise VC money. It's also very um, constraining because VCs often do not like each other, and they do not like to syndicate, and yet you have to do that as an entrepreneur, get multiple, multiple investors in your company. What was really great was that Atlas and SR1 have a very long history of syndicating together in life sciences. So Atlas is both a life sciences and a tech company. My seed was done out of the tech company, uh, tech, tech venture arm of Atlas, and yet I was able to leverage the relationship and our pivot to specialty and utilize that to sell SR1 on investing in ZapRx as a healthcare IT company for the first time. That's incredible. And you bring up a really good point that I'm very curious about. Um, within the investor space, when you're going and you're getting um, and securing funding, there's a heck of a lot of stuff that happens behind the scenes. Like I'm sitting here wondering myself, to myself, how did, like, how are all these companies getting to know about you? And is it just because you got the publicity from get, securing the funding originally that all of a sudden now people are starting to know about you? Or do these investors speak to each other? Or are they used to saying, hey, you know, we got in on this deal and this is a great company. We think you guys should come and partner up with us. Like, what happens behind the scene in that particular <laughs> culture? Because it seems very, um, for those who have not gone after funding, I think it's this blank wall that no one really knows what happens behind there. So can you give us a little bit of an insight about that? Sure, sure. It's, it's, a, it's a very cloak and dagger process. So I'm happy to shed some light because it's um, venture capital funding for an early stage company, is, you know, it's a necessary evil. So even just in approaching Atlas, you have to know how to approach investors and you need to get warm introductions. So you should never, ever, ever start by cold emailing an investor. Um, if you bump into them at, a, an event and exchange cards, don't assume that you're going to be invited in um, and they're going to invest in you. Um, also, the pitch deck, that's another necessary evil. I have never raised money um, by walking into an investor's office with a pitch deck and show, walking through that, that pitch deck um, you know, page by page and, and closing funding. It's all about how you tee up um, the introduction. So you want to get a warm introduction, and there's a few that, ways that are meaningful. You can either get a warm introduction from someone who's an industry expert that is interested in investing and wants to get the opinion of the of the other investor. Um, that's very that's very powerful. 
You can get an introduction from an entrepreneur who is a current portfolio company for that investor, and the entrepreneur says, hey, this is really interesting. You should take a look at this. Let's all sit down for coffee together and talk. So that first meeting is always a conversation. It's not a pitch. Uh, the next best way to get in, in, um, in, uh, introdu- introduced to the investor is through one of their current LPs. So in this case, you know, GlaxoSmithKline backs SR1 and has an acute interest in finding um, companies that will be meaningful to the manufacturer. Atlas really knows that. Atlas plays that game very, very, very well. So it was meaningful um, in the process to uh, appeal to the LP, appeal to current entrepreneurs that were in the portfolio, and get the warm introduction from another investor um, that the new potential investor respects. I did all three of those things. That's incredible, and I love it. Was it's obvious that you were very strategic about what you were doing, not just sort of falling backwards into it. Yes, it takes a very long time. The process of teeing up the the introduction, the process of going and having that initial conversation that's not a pitch, the process of showing them your your technology, meeting with them, looking at the pitch deck, getting feedback, sort of inside inside track information, and then walking into the partners meeting and, and presenting. And then they have follow-up questions and they enter due diligence and then getting a term sheet and accepting those terms and negotiating them and then having the wire hit your bank account. That whole process takes months. Once you get into due diligence and a term sheet and the wire, that takes days. But it's really the art of fundraising is all the work that goes into it. And that's really where entrepreneurs can fumble and make mistakes. And it's difficult because nobody ever talks about that process. Now, you've created an entirely new technology that did not exist on the market before. What are some of the biggest challenges that you face being the first to market? And what, what are the best parts about it? Sure. So selling a thing of your imagination um, is not easy. And walking into a meeting um, saying, you know, I've got this concept um, and even just trying to get engineers to build it is not easy. I mean, you have to really start um, manually and show, you know, on a whiteboard, this is where the pain points are in the bottlenecks. This is what technology is being used currently. And then start quantifying them. This is how long it takes to process um, this bottleneck and get and get through it, and this is what happened next. And in t- and really taking it step by step. That's how you can start building technology step by step. Um, and that's it's very very difficult, and it's very hard work, and it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience and acute attention to detail. That's an area that I I think entrepreneurs when coming up with something that's totally new. Um, they can get overwhelmed with all the details and, and, and the attention to details and the, the, you know, going through everything with a fine-tooth comb, but you really have to do that work. You really have to sort of uh, understand at a very granular level every single um, part of the process, every workflow, every step, and that's anything from, you know, baking a cupcake if you're going to be a you know, bakery um, to understanding technology and understanding how to take something that's a paper process and make it an electronic process. Um, once you do that, though, and you know it at a granular level, you can sell it into customers because you're no longer selling the total segment of your imagination. You've got something that you can actually back it up. And the most uh, meaningful part is selling the value proposition. So you're not working hard at selling the, the vision of the, of the technology. You're working at selling the value proposition. You're going to find pain points that are meaningful to that customer. You're going to quantify them. And you're going to say how you solve them, and you're going to demonstrate a value return to that customer by utilizing the technology. So it becomes a conversation that ultimately, uh, you know, gets very analytical um, and really drives a, a business model and a revenue model for a company. And then you can, you know, overlay the technology on that and, and dazzle people with the technology. So the, it's a definitely a, a specific approach when you're selling something that doesn't exist currently. Um, and it can, it can be um, very difficult. But if you really approach it, methodically and you set yourself up for small milestones before you get to a larger beachhead, that's one way that you can be successful in selling a a figment of your imagination. What are the biggest pitfalls that you think that you are open and vulnerable to for being the first to market with this idea? I think the biggest pitfall realistically is getting the business model wrong. You're pricing something that doesn't exist. So it's not like you're going out and buying a slice of pizza, which you can understand the market for. It's a dollar here or if you put pepperoni on it, $2. You're selling something that, you, that you're inventing. 
and you're selling something that um, where you could potentially price it wrong and leave money on the table, and that is deadly because it leads to overall scalability of the business. Are you going to be a, a billion-dollar company, or are you only going to make it to you know one million in revenue? I would say um, that that's the biggest risk to to um, selling something that doesn't exist. The best way to compensate for that is to go through what I just described, that very, very granular process where you quantify bottlenecks and you can sell value proposition to a customer. But you really want to make sure that you get really smart people around the table. And that's where having venture capital funding from from blue chip firms like Atlas or SR1 is meaningful because not all money is green. It's not not all equal. You have to get the talent behind that, the um, ability for investors to spend time with you, get advisors around the company, and really figure out how to price something that's totally unique. Wow. I love that. That's really great advice. Can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about your business model? How You've developed this technology that allows um, patients, physicians, and pharmacies to be able to communicate and make the whole prescribing uh, process a heck of a lot easier, user-friendly. Um, can you explain how you actually make money on that? Sure. So, I mean, we can't get into too too many specifics here, but I can overlay the approach of what to do. One of the first things that you need to, to do as a, as a company is recognize if you're solving a pain point versus an acute pain point. A pain point is something that someone will say, oh, that's a great solution. I'd love to use it. And you say, great. How much do you want to pay for it? And they say, actually, I don't want to pay anything for it. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing which is less efficient and maybe not as convenient, but I don't have to pay for it. An acute pain point is something that you solve and people say, oh my God, I could have used that yesterday. I'll pay this for it. And they're offering to pay you for it. So in looking at what we're doing, we really had to understand um, who could be the potential customer because there are users on the platform and there are customers on the platform. Uh, what's interesting is that they're equally split. So I've got two stakeholders that are customers. That would be the pharmaceutical companies because they benefit from every time this medication gets to a patient and it's um, and it's consumed and utilized by that patient to, to treat a condition. And especially pharmacies that dispense the medication benefit because they they host these um, sorry they house these high margin medications and they are the ones who are dispensing it. So they recoup margin. So that's understanding the flow of products, funds, and services um, within an ecosystem. We then have users who will benefit from the system, but they're not where the money is. Um, so patients will benefit tremendously. They'll have improved health outcomes. But in the reality of things, you're never going to you're never going to charge a patient to use the system, but you would definitely charge a manufacturer to use the system. Um, and finally, there's the doctors. The doctors are where you know a prescription order is generated. They're the they're the genesis of the whole system. Uh, it would fall apart without the provider. And yet you would never charge the provider for that because while they benefit and they reduce the administrative burden, their goal is to get back to treating the patient. It's not to be bogged down in paperwork. So they benefit from a smoother, faster, more efficient system. But again, it's not its not where the dollars are. Um, I want to take a step back for a second. You mentioned earlier on in this interview about the fact that your first um, action after the funding was really building out your team. Um, and getting the right people on board. Can you talk a little bit about your leadership style? How are you managing your company? What is your style for being able to really empower and, and light a fire under this team and get them all going in the same direction? Sure. So I do a few things um, as a leader um, that are important. And one is that I'm incredibly respectful of the fact that I have a team and not employees. I legitimately do not view people as employees. I view them as team members that are constructive um, to the overall goal of launching a company. And that's one thing that I've seen in management styles, um, that people, um, you know, leaders can be very dismissive of their underlings. And that's really not successful overall um, in a business strategy, uh, or sorry, in a, in, a, in a disposition and a strategy for, for leadership. Um, and I, I just think that's, that's absolutely critical. I also treat all my team members as adults. Um, and so that one's harder to, harder to define, but I don't micromanage. So I tell everybody immediately, you know, you have to be a self-starter, and if you're not, this isn't the right environment for you. I want you to be thinking ahead and identifying future pain points, and I want you to be solving for those pain points without me micromanaging you. There's a few different things you can do to set the tone for company culture, and one of the ones that goes along with, you know, treating your team members as, as adults, and it's rather unique, is that we have totally unlimited vacation days. 
So there's no vacation policy other than it's unlimited. It's take what you need. As a result, I don't have people calling in with fake doctor appointments. Um, I don't have people, you know, being delayed or here or there because they had to run an errand and therefore couldn't get it done. In fact, you see the exact opposite. The level of productivity for my company is insane. Insane. Uh, people work days, nights, weekends. They work on the hours that is most convenient for them. So some tech people like to start late and end late. Um, that doesn't work, obviously, for the sales or marketing team. But no one sort of feels as though they've got those 10 days that they're um, they can't waste and they're totally claustrophobic. You don't have the nine to five, I'm in the office and I'm going to take an hour lunch break um, and I've got to run out and do something else because you're, you're, not, you're not constrained in that way. It's totally free. And the result is that my team is really passionate. I hire people that are just diehard, that work insane hours because they, they love what they're doing. And that's part of um, setting the culture and the tone for a company. And that's part of a leadership style that um, I found to be very, very effective, particularly for, for my company. Zoe, what do you love best about what you get to do every day? I, I just love uh, living the dream of, of um, you know, being a startup CEO. I mean, I chose something that was so difficult to execute on. The statistics for startup failure is just staggering. Um, and every single day I get to wake up and solve a problem and work with a team on solving that problem. Um, I'm the happiest I've ever been in my life, uh, and I can say that uh, for a fact. I wake up and just can't wait to see what else has come in for the day, and I'm solving a really big problem, and it's, it's meaningful, and it's worth it. So the encouragement that I get, both from my team, the investors, and the advisors, but ultimately the people who are in the marketplace that just can't wait uh, for this technology to exist, and I get you know messages every day. You know, when when will this be here? When can I use it? You know, that's um, that's the most thrilling part of of running ZapRx. And so, where are you guys in the process of actually really getting it to market? Sure. So we are currently um, we've identified specialty as the um, as the niche market that we're going to go after. Um, in doing that, we identified one disease state with which to launch, which is pulmonary arterial hypertension. We've mapped the, the top doctors, they're called the Elite Eight, that prescribe um, medications and treat that disease. Uh, we're currently in talks with three of those um, Elite Eight uh, to potentially launch pilots. So we're working out which pilot location uh, we would want to, to launch with. Um, that really, you know, that goes back into uh, finding um, something that's either close or has a high patient volume, um, the right level of innovation and support from a center of excellence. Uh, we're in talks with multiple specialty pharmacies right now. Uh, we're nailing the business revenue model, so working with our advisors and our investors. Uh, right now, we're really making sure not to leave any money on, on the table as we're in those discussions because we'll be you know, executing on a proposal stage um, quite soon. The technology is, uh, is built and fully functional. I hired a rock star CTO a few months ago, Scott McKay. Uh, he has completely fleshed out the, the technology and we're, we're um, really looking to nail that pilot location and that specialty pharmacy, close on that, on track, and then we'll be launching. Uh, and we're really excited for that. i got to ask you this question. After so much work, there have had to be so many stories and times that you just really felt like there's no way I can go on or this is just a horrible day or whatever it is or just had a, like really bad disappointments or failures. What do you do to get back up in those moments? Yeah, that's interesting because I haven't had a moment yet which has been a uh, full stop. What I have is more moments that get me really riled up and sort of frustrated or angry. But I'll typically then, rather than waste my, my time being angry, I'll, I'll sit down and I'll mull over the problem. And I know the most successful way to untangle a knot or problem that's you know, causing you ire or anxiety uh, is to really unwrap it and say, okay, what are the ways that I can approach this um, and what can I solve for? Um, I've done that every single time. If it's been an investor that said, you know, it's too early or I'm not ready or I don't want to do it or a customer um, or someone who I thought was a customer. For example, doctors are not customers. Um, and said, okay, uh-oh, shoot, this person's not going to pay for it, but who is? Uh, a lot of times it's stepping back um, and looking at the problem. And then as soon as I step back and I sort of unravel that, that problem, I immediately start again on my, my methodology of where are the milestones, what can I get to, how am I going to approach that larger beachhead, 
and the next thing you know, you've, you've solved the problem. Um, or you're well on your way to solving the problem, and you're suddenly enthusiastic and passionate and diehard again. Mm, I love that. It reminds me of a, an answer I got from an interview. I think this was Jessica Singer with MamaBargains.com, and I asked her, what do you do when it, when you're so frustrated and you just don't think you can do one more thing? And she said, I do 12 more things because, <laughs> which I thought was brilliant. And she said, because, you know, I just keep plowing through, moving forward. And by the end of those 12 things, I realized I just did 12 things. Even when I didn't think that I could, I'm a rock star. You know, I don't think that those were her words, but something along those lines. And I just thought that that was brilliant and, and very, um, very deliberate, which I thought was, was very, yeah. very intelligent, just like your answer here of really taking through everything and unraveling it and really figuring out and, t- and choosing to take a step back. Now, Zoe, you've obviously done a lot to um, stay on top of your industry, stay on top of running your business, meaning um, you're really strategic. You're constantly thinking about how to do things better and how to be better, a better entrepreneur, a better business owner. Um, talk to me a little bit about any, any books that you've had that you've read that just really made a significant impact on how you show up to you know, your business every day. Sure. So I actually, interestingly enough, have um, – did not spend my time reading a lot of books. What I spent my time doing was watching other entrepreneurs and being at places that are supportive of entrepreneurs. Um, I feel like a lot of people can get wrapped up in hearing about somebody else's problem and reading about it and then fantasizing about how it could apply to themselves. I see less of, okay, I'm going to go go live that problem. Uh, I'm going to go shadow an entrepreneur. I'm going to go work with somebody and see how these solve problems so that I can apply that directly to myself. Um, I think it's much more effective to go out um, and either, you know, learn, fail, and relearn, um, retool, or work with advisors who can share with you their perspective, their experience. I find it so meaningful to have um, entrepreneurs that have failed and they can share with me what they did and how they ignored red flags, warning signs, um, and then there's the analysis of failure and going back and saying, okay, here's how and why I didn't work. And I'm, I would say in particular, I'm ruthless with that. I mean, I look at everything where I think I have not done a good enough job and I see how can I improve it. Uh, one example I can give, um, you know, I raised money from Atlas Venture and Life Science Angel Network, a million dollars at 27 years old with no track record. And most people would say, wow, that's, that's awesome. Um, I went back and evaluated myself in that fundraising cycle. I gave myself a C, <laughs> like A, B, C, D. I gave myself a C. Um, and I had all these reasons as to why I was going to give myself a C. And I went for this new round of funding. And because I had really dug into that analysis and I hadn't said, all right, great job, you know, pat yourself on the back, give yourself all these accolades, you're awesome. I went back and I said, you could have done it better. And here's how you could have done it better. And it was really just you know, conversations, you know, coaching myself and then um, ultimately finding an entrepreneur and mentor that I could work with and how I could execute better. So when I went out um, with this new round of funding, I doubled the valuation of the company. I convinced my current investor to double down and I got SR1 who had never done an HIT deal to invest in ZapRx. And that ultimately, I think, led to further success for my company and I'll take lessons that I learned in this current round and I'll apply it to my Series A and I'll raise even more money and hopefully um, do it even more seamlessly. Wow. You are, you totally rock girl. And I got to (laughs) say, I got to say that's exactly why I was so excited to have you on the show today because that's exactly, that gets right at the heart of what Business Women Rock is all about. This podcast is here as the platform to share the stories of great women like you who've just built incredible companies and had incredible business journeys because listening to those stories people really be our listeners being able to hear what you're saying connect with that and either take it and learn it because it's something that either they've never heard before or they've never experienced before um, but they know they need to be ready for or they've experienced exactly that and now they have they have, they have another person in line and they're not alone they're, they're in this journey with you together that is exactly why why I am so passionate about this podcast and about what we're doing here exactly for that reason and and you are such a great prototype of exactly why that works so well because when you listen to other people you listen to their their experience you hear and, and learn from the failures that they make and you're willing to go out and do it yourself that's priceless. So thank you. And congratulations on being uh, such a great <laughs> example of that. That's absolutely beautiful. Sure. 
Thank you. I'll, I'll share one, you know, one more story um, about that. It's not just about um, being in a position where you can learn from other entrepreneurs. Um, I recognize that I, I'm very, very young, uh, early in the development of ZapRx and overall in my career, but that doesn't mean I can't be a mentor for other people um, and really help other entrepreneurs that are looking to launch. I will never, ever let my age or gender get in the way of being a great f***ing entrepreneur. I just won't. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And to really highlight that, um, I can talk about my protege. It was crazy as it might sound that I'm now 29 and have raised a few million dollars and have a great company that's uh, rocking and rolling. I actually have a protege. She's even younger than myself, if you can believe it. I started working with her. Uh, when she just turned 18, she was 17, turning 18. Uh, she's a freshman. She was a freshman at Harvard, and she had the idea for a tech company and had thought she had a potential patent. I worked with her and gave her the exact roadmap that I went through to launching a company. What took me nine months took her two months. Um, she was able to get her technology built at a fraction of the price that I had mine built. Granted, hers was also didn't require um, HIPAA compliance or anything like that for healthcare. Uh, her name is Olenka Pollock. Uh, she, at 19 years old, raised a million dollars, um, and she is currently in proposal stage with um, a bunch of different um, companies out in L.A. She just uh, actually left Harvard and has um, sort of deferred for a couple of years as she goes out to launch her company, and she only just turned 20. It's proof that you can do it um, at any age. Uh, it's proof that, you know, you can be a rock star as a woman in business. Um, and I, I really thank Cheryl Sandberg for all the work she's done um, with Lean In and, and um, defying stereotypes, um, Melissa Myers too. Um, and then making sure that you, you can do it and you have to believe in yourself. You are the first person that has to believe in you. And you really need to be coachable and you have to be able to be a self-starter. Um, and you have to find other people to get around and rally around you. But the bottom line is you can do it. And I don't think that there's any better way to end this interview. Zoe, gosh, I have just sincerely enjoyed this conversation today. And I know our listeners have been able to really um, just learn so much from your journey and a lot of the advice that you're giving and, and really sharing your experience so that others can shorten their learning gap, which is exactly what you were talking about. Thank you so much. Congratulations on all of your success and all the continued mountains that you continue climbing and sharing your education and experiences with others because that makes such a big deal. I really believe the more that we share our stories with one another, the, the easier it gets. And, you know, we really get to lock shields in this entire you know, endeavor of business together. So thank you so much for being a part of the Business Women Rock podcast. We sincerely appreciate your time. Yes, thank you so much. And if I could have inspired one one entrepreneur who's listening today, um, I'll be happy. I'm sure you inspired a heck of a lot more than that. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. And that was the amazing Zoe Berry. Holy cow, that girl knows business, right? It was so wonderful to talk to her. She had so much energy and uh, was just so brilliant about business. So I really, really hope that you got something out of there. If you got something that really touched your heart, please go to bizwomenrock.com. Go find the show notes for Zoe Berry and write a comment there. Let me know what you thought. Let me know what you got out of it and how it really touched you. And if you love this episode and love the Business Women Rock podcast, go to iTunes, go give us a rating, go leave a comment there. Let others know what you think so they can listen in too. Thank you so much for listening and keep on rocking.